You're going to love this. Just love it. is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus, in Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR Public Reality Radio. In New Orleans, on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C., on 105.5 FM. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Internet on Progressive Voices Channel, That Roots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman. But today, you have me, Angie Coiro, and a very special guest. It is the holiday season, and our politics and economics still suck. The White House is still under the tyrannical reign of the toddler-in-chief, our budget just got disemboweled, yay. Now it's a new tax law, no longer a bill. Healthcare is flatlining, the world continues to cook. On that last point, though, the terrifying reality of global warming, I want to bring you something more in keeping with the season today, more in keeping with light and hope and faith in the future. Because if anyone knows enough about climate change to just give up and sit down sobbing and never get up, that would be Al Gore. Our former vice president spends 28 hours a day, 10 days a week, sucking up all the available knowledge of just how dire our situation is. Then he goes around encouraging people to do good things, to change that. Now, you've got to admit, that is pretty impressive and resilient. And maybe a shot in the arm for those of us who focus daily on how bad everything is. It's been more than 10 years since the original book and movie Inconvenient Truth came out, that landmark combination of science and cry from the heart and SOS to get involved. He's back, and it's a book-movie combo again, an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power. Now, the movie follows Gore as he works around the world negotiating policy change and encouraging new activists. The book is an update on climate science. Quite a beautiful piece of work, by the way. And a handbook for activists. I'm the host of In Deep with Angie Coiro, heard on some of these very same stations and streams. And I was really thrilled to interview Al Gore on stage for In Deep two weeks ago. Now, Brad and I thought this was something you would enjoy here, too. A bit of light as we approach the end of this relentlessly bleak 
year. Here's former Vice President Al Gore, the founder and chair of the Alliance for Climate Protection and the author of An Inconvenient Sequel, greeting a packed theater in San Mateo, California. I want to put a framework around tonight that I stole right out of the book. And it's a little more than halfway through the book. And you say, we ought to feel a sense of joy that we are alive at a moment when we can join with one another in a great cause, the stakes of which have never been higher. Mm. I want to acknowledge some of the things that are in the news, and these are challenges to mm. joy. <laughs> the Carnegie Institution for Science today reported in a new study that the Paris Accord goals are likely too optimistic, the most dire warming scenarios are probably the most accurate. And it's not rare to get bad news like that. For every time we hear of a gain, we hear of something terrible. In this framework of ongoing hope and ongoing joy in the yeah. opportunity, how do you process it? You hear a story like that, what's going on here? Well, it's a thoughtful question. And I see uh, reports like the one you cited, and you're right, there are many of them. I see them in the context of a, a larger process of change that I think is uh, gaining momentum. There was a famous uh, economist in the last uh, century, Rudy Dornbush, who, who once wrote, things take longer to happen than you think they will, but then they happen much faster than you thought they ever could. And here in uh, the region of Silicon Valley, uh, we have learned to expect what they call exponential curves with uh, change seeming to take forever, and then all of a sudden they take off computer chips, genomic sequencing, cell phones, flat screen TVs. The good news uh, in the world today is that renewable energy technology, principally solar, photovoltaics, and wind, are following a similar trajectory, a similar exponential curve. Mm -hmm. Batteries are now following the same path. Electric vehicles are spreading wildly. LEDs. The world, I believe, is in the early stages of a sustainability revolution that has the magnitude of the industrial revolution, but the speed of the digital revolution. And we've seen the decoupling of CO2 and other greenhouse gas emissions from economic progress. I've been at this for about 40 years, and from the very beginning, the hard problem has been that the maximum that's politically feasible has fallen way short of the minimum that would satisfy, satisfy the laws of physics and really solve the crisis. So what do you do with that? You have two options, basically. You can curl up in a fetal position and fall into despair. <laughs> um, or you can work on expanding the limits of what is politically feasible. And we have seen a big increase in political feasibility. In Paris, two years ago next week, uh, 197 nations, two of them, uh, held back, uh, Syria and Iraq, but now they've signed as well. Every nation in the world uh, signed this agreement to bring down to net zero global warming pollution by mid-century, or as soon thereafter as possible. Uh, and I know what you're thinking, Trump. Um, <laughs> he did 
announced that he wants to pull out of the agreement. But there are two things that you need to know about that. Number one, the, the agreement was pretty carefully written, and the first date upon which the U.S. could legally withdraw from the treaty happens to be one day after the next presidential election in 2020. Uh, so, so a new president could simply give 30 days notice and the U.S. would be back in the agreement. Second thing is that uh, thanks to your great governor, Jerry Brown, who I think is a real hero and Governor Jay Inslee from the state of Washington, and Governor Andrew Cuomo from New York, and now uh, 12 other states uh, have all said we're still in the Paris Agreement. Hundreds of cities have said we're still in, hundreds of universities, thousands of business leaders, uh, we're still in. And the projections now are that the U.S. will meet and exceed the commitments under the Paris Agreement, regardless of what Trump tweets or says or, or, or does. Uh, so, so that's the, that's the good news, and, and that is evidence that the limits of what's uh, feasible have expanded. But this report you cited, one of many, does make the point that even if every country in the world fully meets the commitments signed up to in Paris, it still wouldn't be enough. So, but we're closer <laughs> than we have been. Uh, and the agreement has another provision. This is a mandatory, but most of it's voluntary. This is mandatory. That every five years, every country has to reevaluate with transparent information whether or not they can make bolder commitments to have steeper reductions. And that process will start on the first period uh, a year from uh, this week in a meeting in Warsaw, Poland. Now, because the cost of renewables and the other things I mentioned continue to plummet, it is predictable that a majority of countries will, in fact, be able to expand their commitments. So uh, it's a race. The problem's getting worse, faster than we feared, but the solutions are developing faster than we hoped, and they're gaining momentum. Uh, and when the, there, there are certain thresholds. There are thresholds in the environment, unfortunately. There are also thresholds in economics and politics. And when the cost of electricity from the sun and the wind goes well below the cost from burning fossil fuels without subsidies, then uh, a, a kind of a dam breaks and you have a flood of investments. In fact, this is the seventh year in a row that global investments in renewable sources of electricity have exceeded investments in fossil fuel electricity, and the gap grows year by year. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are many other examples I could cite, but I'll just cite one more. Just since the Paris Agreement, uh, India has done a U-turn. They're building an enormous uh, quantity of new solar farms, 175 gigawatts, which is a, a huge amount. Uh, and they've just announced that within only 13 years, 100% of all their new cars and trucks will have to be electric vehicles. They're, they're ahead of us uh, on, on that by uh, a, a good way. It's a very hopeful sign. 
a lot of very savvy political voices are talking about the void of world leadership, both environmentally and otherwise, yeah. that we're seeing from America. And the same voices are saying that China stands ready to lead in a lot of ways. Yeah. China is not the strongest when it comes to the environment. So what possibilities <clears throat> are we looking if, in fact, they start taking the lead? Well, China is uh, trying to fill the vacuum left by the U.S. somewhat withdrawing from its leadership position. Uh, President Xi Jinping of uh, China has very consciously set out to make China the leading nation in the world. Uh, he's made speeches uh, at Davos, at the World Economic Forum uh, last January. It was a stunning uh, event. Everybody was, who was there said, what just happened? It was, it, it was as if you could translate his speech into saying, uh, you know the U.S. used to be the leader? I'm going to do this now. And what he said in substance about uh, trade, about the global environment, about uh, structures of peace, etc., is a speech that an American president could have, could have made. Uh, when he spoke uh, last month at uh, the conclusion of the Party Congress in China, the same thing. And if you look at their um, proposals, this One Belt, One Road proposal is many times larger than the Marshall Plan that we launched after World War II uh, for a lot of countries. I was in Eastern Europe last week, and uh, they have a, a huge initiative there. All the Eastern European and Central European countries are now beginning to look to China for assistance in building their highways and bridges and support for renewable energy and all kinds of things. Now, you said they're not the best on the environment. I'd qualify that. You're right in the sense that they're the biggest emitter by far, and even on a per capita basis. You know, they have 1.4 billion people, but on a per capita basis, they have more emissions than Europe does now. They're still burning that much coal. But their coal use peaked in 2014. Uh, they've been coming down. They build more than half of all the solar panels in the world, a similar fraction of all the windmills. They're introducing a cap-and-trade program. They're really uh, enforcing environmental restrictions now. Now they have to because their air is so dirty from the co-pollutants uh, that we, you know, conventional air pollution. Life expectancy in northern China has gone down five and a half years just in the last 30 years because of the air pollution alone. And that's a political issue for them. Uh, but, but they also recognize the, the climate crisis for what it is, and, and they genuinely want to provide leadership. The, the Paris Agreement, by the way, was really made possible in many ways by a, an agreement between former President Barack Obama and President Xi Jinping one year before the Paris Agreement where the two countries agreed to work together. That's now in jeopardy because of Donald Trump, but China is determined to move forward anyway. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to watch in the movie. And we're going to talk about how everyone can become activist. Yeah. You operate at a higher plane than most of us can aspire to because you have a name, because you have access, entree. It was interesting to watch you at the various conferences throughout the movie 
dealing in some pretty heavy-duty terms across the table from people insisting on staying with coal. One person in particular from India holding America's feet to the fire about where we are failing. And then later in the film, we see you negotiating to a point of agreement. Doing, you know, you're doing the work on the phone and, hey, can we get this to happen here? <laughs> are there lessons that people who don't have your profile and don't work at that level, are there lessons to learn for us watching you do that? Well, thank you. Yes, uh, I, I think that everybody can make a difference. You know, I hold trainings all around the world for climate activists. I had one in Denver earlier this year and um, a bunch of students from Colorado State came, and the uh, president of Colorado State came and announced that uh, they were going 100% renewable. And Colorado State is known as a very conservative uh, institution, and they have a, a very conservative board. And I asked her, and why, I'm really happy about it, but how'd this happen? She said, well, we got way more student signatures on a petition behind this than we have ever had for any cause that we've ever dealt with. Uh, and so they, they bent to the will of the student body. Cities can be persuaded. Uh, there's a conservative city in the heart of oil country in Texas that is in the movie. The mayor is a conservative Republican Trump supporter, but he happens to be a CPA and he knows numbers really well, and he did the math and saw they could save money. And so the city went 100% renewable, and a lot of cities are now doing that. Some, I think uh, uh, more than 50 have now uh, made that pledge in the U.S., including big cities like Pittsburgh and Atlanta. And if, that starts at the local level, and there's strength in numbers, mm -hmm. and there's value in, in passion. That's essential to really care about this, and not give up. That reminds me of maybe my favorite moment in the sequel movie, and that is the footage of Senator Inhofe, who is probably the most anti-science, <laughs> anti-reality person in the Congress. Yeah. And he was supposed to be questioning you mm. at a hearing, but he was haranguing you. <laughs> and finally, you were allowed to answer the question. And you took them on. You never see anybody pause at these hearings to stop and think. It's almost illegal. And you like really stopped and thought. Mm. And then you spoke to him very personally. Yeah. And you said, I really wish we could be alone away from the cameras. I'd really mm. like to talk to you. Yeah. Whether you convinced him at all, indications are you did not. It's, it speaks to how at least we have to make that effort. And the passion yeah. does come out. Yeah, and that can work. You know, one of the problems with the climate issue today is that there's a false equivalent to say that both parties ha have done it. Uh, I'm a Democrat, so you have to take with a grain of salt what I say about the, the direction of the Republican Party today, but, but I think the evidence bears out what I'm about to say, that they have really made it a kind of a litmus test for Republicans to be against doing anything to acknowledge that there is a climate crisis, much less solve it. That's beginning to break down, though. And conversations, uh, personal in nature, sincere, can make a difference. I'll, I'll tell you a story. I was, uh, last year, I was at, the, uh, at an airport getting out of the car to go, go into the uh, terminal building, and a man came up, and he introduced himself. His name was Jerry Taylor. And 
his story is quite remarkable. He told me there on the curb that for 20 years, he was at a, an organization called the Cato Institute, which is one of the conservative think tanks in Washington. And he was the guy in charge of disseminating climate denial, 20 years. And he said, I want you to know you've convinced me. I've changed my mind. I want to know how I can help. And he told me that he personally knows of at least 10 Republican members of the U.S. Senate who are actively trying to figure out how to come back from the end of the long limb they're on and change their position publicly on climate. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Quero. And today, coming up, more of Gore on the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. We really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. And real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media, you know, the folks who got it all wrong from the jump, must be able to continue the fight for all of us. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. In the You are listening to the Bradcast. I'm Angie Coyro sitting in for Brad and Desi today, bringing you a special holiday listen to one of the real bright lights in the fight for what matters, former Vice President Al Gore. Here is more of our conversation. Something in the movie kind of surprised me uh, is that you went into a recounting of the Bush-Gore decision. I have to acknowledge all the audience questions that say you ought to be president. I just have to acknowledge that. Oh. <laughs> I would, have, I would have come here just to hear that. <laughs> but the film is about climate change and it's about activism, and I wonder why you put that in there. Well, I didn't put it in there. The, the directors uh, are from mm-hmm. San Francisco, uh, Bonnie Cohen and John Schenck, great filmmakers. And the best evidence uh, that I did not have control over the content is that in my mind, I'm younger and thinner with darker hair. <laughs> And some of those scenes never would have made it. But, but if you, I, you know, I haven't asked them why they put that in. I think that there was a short stretch in the movie there where they wanted to communicate uh, how long I've been doing this. And that's kind of a, a lump in that story <laughs> that, they, that they wanted to put in. I, but you'd have to ask them. Well, you've tried to do this within the system, and now you've been working yeah. things outside the system. So. Where do you feel you've been more effective, inside or outside? Well, um, I've really enjoyed being in the Congress and Senate, vice president. Um, and by the way, I'm under no illusion that there's any position with as much ability to influence the future for good as that of president of the United States. Uh, but since that wasn't to be, I'm really grateful to have found 
other ways to, to push for positive change. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to, to do some things outside the system, and I'm continuing to do it. I just finished uh, Tuesday night. I came here from New York City. Every year, in addition to these training programs and our other activities, I do a, an annual 24-hour global telecast called 24 Hours of Reality. The NGO I lead is called the Climate Reality Project. And we start in the eastern time zone and go west, and we hit the prime times in every single time zone all the way around the world, and then come back to, uh, to New York. We were broadcast into a half a billion homes this year, uh, and we had 32 million online viewers. We trended one, number one in, on Facebook Live and uh, YouTube uh, several times during the 24 hours. I get a lot of good feedback from that, from people who say, I saw this, I changed my mind, I, I want to do what I can. I was talking with an engineer from Stanford earlier who said that as a result of the first movie, she really changed her life. That makes me feel great. And there are lots of people who have made a decision to be a part of solving this crisis. Uh, this is the most serious challenge humanity ha has ever faced. I mean, this is, uh, this is for real. I mean, we're using the sky as an open sewer. Uh, we're putting 110 million tons every day of man-made heat-trapping pollution. The cumulative amount now traps as much heat energy every day as would be released by 400,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every day. And it's a big planet, but that's a lot of heat energy, and it's really messing up the climate balance that has supported the flourishing of human civilization. And we're putting things at risk now that we simply should not put at risk. We're in danger of losing half of all the living species on the planet in this century. This is equivalent to the, uh, the fifth great extinction when the asteroid hit near Yucatan wiped out the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. This time it's not an asteroid, it's us colliding with the Earth's ecological system. Uh, and if we don't come to grips with it pretty quickly, then the consequences are, are just unimaginable. The good news is that we are acting now, we're gaining momentum, but it is still a race. We are not yet winning fast enough. We can, and here's a statistic that's hard to believe, but the math of all this uh, heat trapping pollution that we're putting up there, the math is above my pay grade. Uh, I do know this, that some of it will that we put up there today will still be there a thousand years from now, and some fraction 10,000 years from now. But if we could magically stop putting it up there tomorrow, which we can't, but if we could, how long would it take for half of it to fall out? The answer is 20 years. And the, the, uh, the black carbon, the soot, it would fall out in two weeks. Wow. So if we really made up our minds to do this, it is easily within our ability to do it. The problem is we still rely on fossil fuels for 80% of all the energy used by the global economy. And so weaning ourselves off that quickly is extremely difficult, particularly when you have the oil and gas companies and the coal companies and the coal burning utilities uh, fighting every step of the way 
against change and using their lobbying and their political contributions and their centuries old networks of influence, not only in this country, but in other countries, uh, in order to solve the climate crisis, we've got to address the democracy crisis because our, our democracy has been hacked long before the Russians hacked it by lobbyists and big money uh, special interest contributors. And we, we've really got to, we've got to address that. Uh, we can, again, and I think the internet-based media, if we can solve the Russian bot problem and the fake news and echo chambers and all that, and then I, I think it gives us a chance to, to really have some effective grassroots activism. Every reform movement in the United States today lives and breathes on the internet, uh, and it's growing, and people are fi finding it easier to get involved and to make a difference. You don't put yourself out there as a psychologist, so I'm asking you to go kind of out on a limb here. I've always wondered, with the people who keep working hard to put pollutants into the air and to yeah. make money off of that, don't they have kids? Yeah. I'm serious. I mean, what, what's going on there that, yeah. that they think that they'll escape what's happening? I, I don't understand that. Well, there was a famous uh, investigative journalist in the U.S. Uh, over 100 years ago. Upton Sinclair, and he said it's hard to get a man to understand something if his salary depends upon him not understanding it. And I think that's a, a big part of this. People, George Orwell once said, uh, people are capable of believing fervently in a lie indefinitely until it collides with reality, often on a battlefield. And here, the collision with reality is in the, you know, the destruction of the ecological system. But we're all capable of fooling ourselves. You know, a lot of times, what the psychologists do tell us is that we'll make a decision based on emotions or some other factor, and then rationalize it uh, and put our minds to work, convincing ourselves, you know, that the decision we've made irrationally is correct. And I think the, the polluters who have kids find it easy to ignore the impact on, on their children uh, if they have blinded themselves to even feeling uh, what that's all about. There's a, a wonderful corollary between the book and the movie in that both of them present some pretty dire stuff interspersed with just some amazing beauty and a great deal of positivity. One of our audience members wants to know what kind of synergy you were looking for with the documentary coming out and the book coming out at mm. the same time. What were you looking for them to be more than the sum of their parts? Hmm. Well, that's a great question. <clears throat> 11 years ago, uh, I was uh, pleasantly surprised at how the movie An Inconvenient Truth and the book of the same title worked together and people would see the book in the bookstore and then they would get a ticket to the movie. They'd go to the movie and then they'd buy the book. And the fancy term for that is synergy. Uh, it's kind of an overused buzzword now, but it's a, it's a, it's a real thing. And uh, I, all the profits, by the way, uh, that I would otherwise get from both the movie and the book go 100% to the Climate Reality Project to, finance more trainings and more activism at the, uh, around the world.
one of the one of the shifts that you make from from the dire to the hopeful, and and this again is is both in the movie and the book. We do see some some really devastating things. You particularly spend some time on a super typhoon in in the Philippines, yeah, yeah. and it's difficult to watch both in retrospect and in the person of someone who appears to one at one of the trainings. Yeah, a young adult. He is still in tears and yeah. still afraid of yeah. what happened to him. But the cool part about that is he's there to make a difference. Yeah. 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 Post-traumatic stress. He, I mean, it's a real thing. And um, But we don't have to go halfway around the world to the Philippines. We can just look at California today. Oh, yeah. Uh, and here in Northern California, not long ago, you had the big fires in Napa and Sonoma and some people had to evacuate their kids from the Bay Area because of the smoke and air pollution. Right now, in uh, Ventura and uh, Bel Air, somebody said it looked like a volcano went off. Uh, uh, now it's in San Diego County, and it's December. And when I did this global broadcast, we began at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday. That was about the exact time when the Ventura fire started, and exactly 24 hours later when I closed the show, I made note of that and said, and now 60,000 acres have burned, 30,000 people have been evacuated, and they say it's impossible to control it. The Santa Ana winds are now at a hurricane category one force there. Um, and before these fires this week, it was already by far the worst fire season in the history of California. And not too many months ago, we had Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, Texas, and it dropped five feet of rain. Five feet of rain? The Texas and Louisiana, that storm dropped on the U.S. as much water, equal to 509 days of the full flow of Niagara Falls in five days. This is bizarre, bizarre. And then right after that, Hurricane Irma hit and destroyed part of the Florida Keys and hit Grace, Puerto Rico, did a lot of damage. Then Hurricane Maria flattened Puerto Rico, the Caribbean islands. Uh, we have had in the last seven years in the U.S. 14 once-in-a-thousand-year events. Now, I'm not an expert on statistics. Uh, <laughs> But I'm given to believe that you're not supposed to have a once in a thousand year event every six months. <laughs> it just, you know, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the same week Houston was hit, almost 10 times that number of people were killed in uh, South Asia. Bangladesh was, one third of Bangladesh was underwater. An extra 50 centimeters hit Eastern India. 100,000 homes destroyed in Nigeria. All that same week. This is a global. Every night on the evening news is like a nature hike through the book of Revelation now. I mean, it, seriously. And, and the, the newscasters have not been covering the issue. They have not been connecting the dots. There are a few honorable exceptions. But that, can I ask you about that? Because I know that you've mentioned in a number of venues that it, it makes you really angry with the news, that they'll, they'll cover what's happening right now. Here's yeah. where the crisis is now. But they don't connect it to global warming. Right, right. In their defense, I'm playing devil's advocate here, in their defense, you can question any weather scientist, climatologist, who will tell you, we can't flawlessly connect 
a given event to global warming. Now, obviously, the big missing thing in that picture is, sure, but then we have five to 10 events in the same month. You know, well, um, it's actually, I would, I would challenge you on your statement. I know where your statement comes from, and I've made it myself in years past. But the, the leading scientists now describe the relationship between these extreme weather event, climate-related extreme weather events and the climate crisis. They describe it differently now. There is a, there's a difference between linear cause and effect, one cause, one effect, and what's called systemic cause and effect. If you have a complex system that's causing a lot of consequences, and then you radically disrupt that complex system, then all the effects are different. Uh, and, and the leading scientists are now saying every storm is different now because of the climate crisis. We have 5% more humidity in the atmosphere today than 30 years ago. That's incredible. You know, not, more than 90% of the, this extra heat energy is going into the oceans, and it's vastly increasing the water vapor coming off the oceans into the sky, and the warmer air holds more water vapor. For each one degree increase, there's a 7% increase in the holding capacity of water by the air. And when it comes over the land, then we get these rain bombs, they're calling them. Uh, so every, every storm is different now. Uh, for example, Hurricane Harvey, it crossed areas of the Gulf of Mexico up to seven degrees warmer than normal. And in the past, as hurricanes uh, approached the land, they would churn cold water up from deeper in the ocean. And when they churn up cold water, then it starts to calm down a little bit just before it hits land. But the, so much heat has gone into the oceans now that it went all the way down 200 meters to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. So there was no cold water in the stack. So it kept getting stronger as it approached the land. And now we have seen the accelerated warming in the Arctic, melting the ice. I had a conversation about this earlier. The jet stream that comes across North America is defined by the difference in the cold temperature of the Arctic and the warmer temperatures uh, farther south. Because the ice is melting in the Arctic, it's heating up twice as fast. So that temperature differential is changing. This is a little complicated, but bear with me here because this is what is responsible for the weather pattern that California has today mm -hmm. uh, and the reason why it's colder than normal in the east today. Uh, the, the jet stream normally comes in a wavy line across, but now it's getting disorganized. Uh, and, and you get this pattern where it goes way up and then way down, and sometimes it just falls apart. Hurricane Harvey was held in place for five days. It wasn't moved uh, up and out to the east as normally happens because it was locked in place. And what we have locked in place now is this extremely dry uh, air, hot, dry air in the west. And the Arctic is spilling, the cold air from the Arctic is spilling down in the east, the so-called polar vortex. And it's because we're seeing the disorganization of the climate pattern. 
Brad and Desi are out today. I'm Angie Guerrero sitting in, and we're going to pick it up from there with former Vice President Al Gore when we come back on the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. So this is Christmas. What have you done? Another year over. Here on the broadcast today, a brightly colored gift for those of you who suffer the endless onslaught of bad news from the White House, including the tax bill, which has now gone from nightmare to waking nightmare with Trump's proud and idiotic signature. So let's go back to the guarded, deeply informed, optimistic activism of Al Gore. Now that climate scientists agree that all weather patterns are affected by global warming, that every storm is different now, why, he wants to know, isn't that regularly in news and weather reporting, or for that matter, in political discourse? We have just come through the third four-year presidential cycle in a row where not one single question about climate was asked in any of the debates to any of the candidates. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. They did a study of all the news coverage on the four main broadcast networks in calendar year 2016. The sum total of all the networks for 365 days that they devoted to climate was 45 minutes. 45 minutes, four networks, 365 days. That is pathetic. Mm -hmm. Now, why is it happening? Why is it happening? I think that the line between news and entertainment has eroded. The days of Walter Cronkite are pretty much over. Uh, and, and we have great journalists. They're probably the best, most educated, dedicated ever. But they're part of organizations now owned by conglomerates where it's not a public service, it's another opportunity to add more money to the bottom line, and that means paying attention to the ratings, and if a subject is covered that causes some fraction of your audience to get angry and change the channel, that hurts financially. It's like a dysfunctional family with an alcoholic father who flies into a rage if the word alcohol is mentioned, so the rest of the family kind of tiptoes around the elephant in the middle of the dining room table. Uh, and so for a variety of reasons, that's, I'm convinced that's one of them, uh, they, they're just reluctant to, to make that fraction of the audience uh, furious at them. And so they, oh, let's don't get into climate. Let's don't talk about climate. And so they don't, but it's, it, it's a disservice to our democracy. Well, that's a good entry point for activism. One of the things about activism, and, and the book is full of different ways that you can all channel your passions, pick your area, and how to it's move forward. It's a handbook forward. for activism. Yeah. One of the things about activism is you have to learn to triage. You have to learn to say, this is a waste of effort, so I'm going to go this way. 
When you're talking about the monolith of media that you know, increasingly held in fewer and fewer hands, and a lot of those have vested interests in not covering the news, right. as an activist, do you work to change that with them, or do you say, media is no longer with us, we're going to go this way? Mm. Well, I think that uh, it depends on where you live and what your skills are and what you want to, uh, what kind of activism you're drawn toward. A lot of people are now having more luck uh, at the local level and at the state level. I think maybe the influence of the large carbon polluters is maximized uh, at the national level where they finance campaigns and the lobbyists are there all the time. And, um, they don't have that as much influence at the municipal level and in a lot of states. So that, that's why you have this odd thing where the Congress is scared to even, I mean, the majority in the Congress is scared to use the word climate, but a lot of states are just going full speed to toward renewables and reduction of greenhouse gases. And so I think a lot of activists are having better luck in those venues now. Uh, you say that you're a recovering politician who never wants to relapse. Well, I've said that, that the longer I go without a relapse, the less likely one becomes. <laughs> Given that, I mean, that speaks a little bit to the world of politicians. And as you say yourself, Congress doesn't seem to get a whole lot done, some out of fear, some out of, you know, entrenched power. Again, with the triaging, how do we decide within our own communities whether it's worth talking to or specific politician, does it matter if they are, for example, owned and run by a corporation that is vested in polluting? Yeah. Is it worth talking to them? Or again, you do an end run? Well, I, I, you know, in the years I was in the Congress, I, I found that uh, there was a very effective formula people could use. Uh, if you, first of all, there's strength in numbers. And if you can get a, a whole posse of people who agree with you and are willing to back you up, uh, and you go to a candidate or an elected official anticipating running for re-election, and deliver a two-part message. Number one, we want you to do the right thing on, on climate. And if you do, we're going to really help you get re-elected. If you don't, I promise you, we will do everything within our power to make sure you are defeated in the next election. I promise you. That kind of works a lot of times. Uh, and, if a, and if it's a hard case, like the hypothetical, then you need more people. But, it, but there's a threshold you can cross where you can bring about change. You take a congressman from a uh, really conservative Republican uh, from California, Daryl Issa from far south. He just announced that he's changing his position on climate. Why? Because enough people in his congressional district read him the riot act. And he's got a, a, an opponent who's really good on the issue. I mean, don't, don't give up. I mentioned this training in, uh, in Denver. Since then, I've had one in Seattle. I've got one coming up in Mexico City. But at Denver, this 11-year-old uh, girl showed up. And I asked the staff, I said, you know, don't we need an age limit? I mean, what is, uh, I mean, and all of a sudden I sounded like the guy with the carnival ride that said you have to be this tall. To, <laughs> and uh, uh, she, 
she signed up, and I noticed for three days she's taking notes uh, just all the time. Two weeks later, I click on this video that's going viral. I didn't recognize her at first, but then I did. She showed up at the town hall meeting of her Republican congressman and got the microphone, and she was just giving him hell on, on, <laughs> on climate. And I thought, you go, girl. And, so I invited her to be a part of this global telecast at the beginning of the week, and she was great, really great. So, you know, when enough people make up their mind that they're going to make a difference, you know, they shouldn't be surprised if they do make a difference. If we want to bring up young activists, we want them to be aware, but we also want to be age appropriate. You don't want to scare the hell out of a little kid. How do you start talking to the very young about climate? Well, that's one of the reasons why I, you know, wondered whether uh, we should train her. But, you know, th these kids get it. I mean, I, I think young people are farther ahead of the game than, than we give them credit for. They, they kind of know what's going on. But I guess for kids, for people of any age, I'm reluctant to, you know, scare, scare people. At the same time, you have to be honest about the reality of what we're facing. You mentioned earlier that uh, there was a leavening of the, these messages of, ur of urgency with images that are of beauty and messages of hope. That's just common sense, you know. You, when, I, when I train people to give the slideshow and the, their own version of the slideshow, I say you have a time budget, you have a complexity budget, and you have a hope budget. <laughs> and you can't bust any of those budgets. And, and you, you have to be honest with people about the danger we're facing. Uh, it's wrong not to. Uh, but you have to leaven it with legitimate hope, and there is legitimate hope. And maybe I get the balance wrong sometimes, but I try and I learn. One of our audience members wants to know, we'll make this a two-part question, what can be done to stop the executive order to redraw the Bears Ears National Monument? Hmm. And the second part of that, can you please make that connection for us between the privatization of land and climate change? Because there, there is a connection. Yeah. Well, it's Bears Ears and the Grand Staircase Escalante, both of them in Utah. There will be challenges in court. Uh, Patagonia, God bless them, is one of the ones uh, launching a a lawsuit, I love that company. They're, they're, they're just great. So th that's, that's one thing, but since it was created by executive order, the Grand Staircase Escalante was one of my initiatives when I was vice president. Bears Ears came under the uh, Obama administration. They're both kind of there. So what's the connection to climate? Okay. One of the most exciting areas in the world for studying dinosaurs is in this protected area. But instead of going for the fossils, they want to go for the fossil fuels and tear up the landscape to try to drill for more oil and more gas. So, and, and they want to go to the Arctic and drill for oil and gas in the Arctic, which is utterly insane. Um, Here's one of the many reasons why. We have about $28 trillion. I know that's an impossible number for any of us to wrap our minds around, but it's a lot of oil and gas, mainly, and some coal, that is 
marked down as highly valuable on the books of multinational oil companies and sovereigns like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. And more than two-thirds of it can never be burned. If the world's going to have a chance to keep the temperature increase at a survivable level. And the International Energy Agency, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, there's a consensus on this. So if we already have three times as much found, discovered, proven, ready to produce, we have three times as much as can be burned, why should we go out to try to find more? Well, the companies stock will go up if they can add to their reserves. But at some point, reality takes hold. You remember the subprime mortgage crisis. There were seven and a half million mortgages given to people who couldn't make a down payment, much less make their monthly payments. Now, when I was a young man, I signed my first home mortgage in Carthage, Tennessee, population 2000, and I sat across the desk from a man named Walter Glenn Birdwell, Jr. I'll never forget it. <laughs> and he asked me, a lot, I was in my 20s, early 20s, he asked me a long series of questions designed to build his confidence that I could make the monthly payments. Well, none of these mortgages would have survived Walter Glenn Birdwell, Jr. <laughs> uh, but the, the banks convinced themselves that if they could just lump together millions of them and attach them to some phony quasi-insurance document that was worthless too, and then sell the package into the global markets, that somehow the risk would magically disappear. And then this guy down near Stanford, who has the patience of Job, just started peeling the layers of the onion back, and he went, oh, these are worthless. Uh, and he made a ton of money, and word began to get out, and then other investors said, you mean they're worthless? Yeah. And so their value just collapsed almost overnight. And that's what caused the credit crisis, a run on the banks, and that's what caused the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. So we have subprime carbon assets now, $22 trillion worth. And they will at some point soon be recognized as having essentially no value because they cannot be put to their intended use and be burned. So when will that happen? I don't know. But I know that last week, one of the largest sovereign wealth funds on the planet, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which got its money from producing oil and gas in the North Sea, surprised the world by announcing, we are getting completely out of all oil and gas stocks. Completely out of them, okay? Uh, and the stocks of the market capitalization of the coal industry worldwide has collapsed 90% in the last decade. The shift to electric cars, almost every automobile manufacturer in the world is now shifting to electric vehicles. A lot of countries, not just India, have announced a phase out of the internal combustion engine. So oil companies, their stocks are gonna, it's a fool's errand to predict the market and I don't want anybody to take my advice on this, <laughs> but I'm just saying that 
It's only a matter of time. So why do you want to dig up these dinosaur fields and completely ruin this beautiful landscape in Utah and risk utter environmental catastrophe in the Arctic Ocean to drill and produce stuff that we already have way too much of that can't be burned in the first place. It is insane. Since you mentioned the subprime mortgage, uh, there's a book by David Dayen, and it does cover how the subprime mortgage came about, but it was about how people got together to fight the banks. Hmm. And then there's, you know, mentioned the Norwegian company, there's George Lakey's Viking Economics, and that is very optimistic about fighting Keystone, about fighting things on many fronts. He's like 70, 80 years old, and he's still getting arrested because he thinks it's worth <laughs> it. What other materials do you think are out there that are parallel to the movie and the book that not only offer an assessment of what's really happening, but yeah. also offer hope? Well, you're better read than I am. I'm interested that you say this guy keeps getting arrested as a way of praising uh, him. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I, I feel the same thing. I mean, it's a sign of where we are that uh, I tell people, my oldest daughter was arrested. I'm so proud of her. It's so, it's so she laid down in a trench that they were digging for one of these new gas pipeline networks. And I, I'm so proud of you, buddy. You get arrested. But uh, what other resources? Well, there's a lot of stuff online. I, I, the uh, indivisible... Uh, Organization, I think, is a great example of a new wave uh, of activists. That's a great resource. And it's important to use the internet, but then it's important to follow up by actually meeting real people in person live, because otherwise it's just clicking on, on boxes. But using the internet to organize and then organizing for real in person and getting politically active. Use your voice. Win the conversation on climate. Use your vote. Use your choices in life. When people demand the climate-friendly alternatives, that not only helps you be a part of the solution, it sends a powerful signal to business, to designers, to engineers, uh, that there's a growing market for the climate-friendly alternatives. Uh, and that drives this change in, in, in markets that we're seeing now. Go to the climate reality project, climatereality.org. Come to a three-day training, you know, Mexico City, but next summer we're going to have one in, uh, in California uh, at, at the end of the summer, and we'll, we'll be in Berlin. And, you know, knowledge is power. There's strength in numbers. Remember the passion. Do something. Get involved. I mean, you know, fight like your world depends on it, because it does, actually. I usually thank people at the end for the conversation. I want to thank you for everything. Thank you oh, for everything. Very nice. you thank thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Angie. Those are highlights of my interview with former Vice President Al Gore, author of the book and subject of the documentary, both entitled An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. Recorded for InDeep, and shared with you because Brad and I both figured you could use a shot in the arm today. Special thanks to the Kepler's Literary Foundation who produced the evening event and to the wonderful people on Al Gore's team who made it possible. Good people are still on the job. That's it for the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero sitting in for Brad and Desi, and I will do that one more time before the new year. Chin up. And as always, good luck, world.